Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on The Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Well, Ventures, we dive into week three of this series on how to build a resilient faith. Uh, I read an article by a uh, law professor, also he's an expert in technology, a gentleman named Tim Liu, and he said that there is a hidden force that is shaping all of our lives that we all underestimate. Uh, Listen to his words as he wrote. He said, the underestimated force that drives our daily lives is convenience. We want everything in our life to be convenient, to be efficient, to be easy. He, He calls convenience the most powerful force shaping our individual lives and our economies. And the more I thought about it, I think he's absolutely right. I mean, you look at the words of Evan Williams, one of the co-founders of Twitter, and and he made this statement. He said, convenience decides everything. It's literally making our decisions for us. That we would make a decision for something that's convenient, really over something we might actually prefer. Now, Wu goes on to describe the hidden danger of this. He said, with its promise, convenience, it promises this smooth, effortless efficiency but it threatens to erase the sort of struggles and challenges that help give meaning to life. Created to free us, it can become a constraint on what we are willing to do, and thus in subtle ways it can enslave us. When we let convenience decide everything, we surrender too much. And I thought about that phrase when he said, it slowly enslaves us. Because in those convenient choices, often we'll forego the important things, and especially the hard things in life, because we've gotten so used to the convenient things in life. I bring this up because we're talking about a topic where we're going to have to go against the flow. We're going to have to do things that are not convenient, especially if we're going to build a resilient faith. And if we want to train the next generation, we train young people, maybe you're a young person watching this message. The kind of choices that you're going to have to make to have a resilient faith in life often will go against the flow of that momentary convenience that's so easy to make. This whole series, we've been looking at this book, and it's based on the work of David Kinnaman and Mark Matlock. And again, I'd encourage you, great resource, Faith for Exiles. And uh, this weekend, on Sunday evening, October 3rd, we're going to have an event on the Venture Campus. And uh, if you want to be a part of that, we'll have uh, dinner and time together. But then David Kinnaman's going to join us via webinar. And so he'll be walking through a lot of these principles. We'll be able to do Q&A. Maybe you're watching this on Sunday and, and you feel like it's too late. You could still join us by webinar. I'd really encourage you because it's not often that you get an expert uh, on a resource like this, especially with his role with the Barna Research Institute. He can really tell us what's happening today and especially what's happening with the next generation. And as we've looked at it, and we've described it, we want to build a generation that has resilient faith. And as they describe in the book, there's kind of five practices that build that kind of faith. And so the practices are people that experience Jesus in a real way in their life. They know how to develop cultural discernment. And we looked at those two practices last week. Meaningful relationships, and we'll talk about that this week. And then over the next couple of weeks and and beyond, vocational discipleship and countercultural mission. 
This week, I really want us to look at this one because I think this is a game changer in a lot of ways. And it seems fairly obvious that if you're going to have kind of a resilient faith, you'd have relationships around that. But but I think, and I'll go back to the opening illustration, the whole uh, problem of convenience is that we so often make quick, convenient choices that I think rob us from developing the kind of relationships that'll lead to a resilient faith. Uh, what do I mean when I say that? Well, if you look at this, this practice number three that we want to have, we want to develop meaningful intergenerational relationships with other believers. This is critical no matter what your age, uh, no matter what your season in life, but especially as we're thinking about if we have young people in the church, your teenagers that are growing up, how do they have meaningful, not just passing in the hall relationships, meaningful intergenerationals. So it's not just that you're always hanging out with your own peer group, that you're always segmented throughout the church. Church is one of the last, maybe the last group or organization on the planet that literally operates intergenerationally. That no matter what your age, we are connected together in the body of Christ. How do we develop that? How do we develop these kind of relationships in a way? And one of the key things that they point out, Kenneman and Matlock point out, the kind of relationships that it's people that you would want to be like, people that you would aspire to have their kind of life. And so you're going to need to know their kind of life. Now, as we've been looking at it, you know, those four categories, everybody from prodigals, those, those 18 to 29-year-olds who've walked away from their faith, all the way up to resilient disciples, we've been looking at each week some of the data around this. And so if you look at these groups, the four groups of prodigals, those who at this point would say, I'm, I'm not a Christian. Nomads, those who are not connected to church anymore, not practicing their faith. Habitual, they may come to church, but they don't have those driven belief systems like we looked at last week. And then the resilient. Look at what they say about relationships and the importance of it. And so how many of them would strongly agree with these statements? The church is a place where I feel I belong. Look at the gap of that. Prodigals would go 5% of them. Only 5% would say that. All the way up to the resilient disciple, 9 out of 10 of them go, yes. I belong there. And, and you feel that sense of relationship that they have. Let me just walk through thee. There's somebody, someone in my life who encourages me spiritually. Uh, a prodigal, only 23% of them would say that's true. Again, look, look at the strength of it on a resilient disciple. There's someone building into my life spiritually. I'm connected to a community of Christians. Now again, and, and notice these categories, only 7% here all the way up, and, and you, you start to see the gaps and the difference that these relationships make. When growing up, I had close adult friends from my church. This is a key one. So these 18 to 29-year-olds, they're saying, man, when I grew up in church, I had close relationships with adults who built into my life. Uh, prodigals, look, only 21% of them would say that was true in my life, growing up in the church. Up to resilient disciples, man, three out of four of them go, yeah, that was a key part of my church experience in life. I admire the faith of my parents. So I saw my parents living this out. And so there was that part of the relational connection as well. And again, you, you don't want to blame parents for a prodigal choice. But as a parent, I'm always looking at it and go, how do I learn in this? And how am I living that out in a way that my kids would look at it and go, yeah, I admire the faith of my parents. I feel emotionally close to someone at my church. And, and again, this is so important. Look, look at this, 5%, 6%. Lower categories, I may have attended there, but I didn't feel close to anyone there. 
all the way up to this, and I'd want to see this number even grow. I, I, I know that we're walking through a lot of stats, and we every week it's a lot that I'm laying on you. And again, this is why I encourage you with the book. It has that much more. But, but what, what I want us to get is the picture that these practices make a difference. They have an impact. And, and as a church, we've got to be real about the fact we're a large church. Man, we, we interact in different ways. Some of you, you're, you're interacting digitally, and I'm glad that you are, and I'm glad we have this online experience. But it'll never take the place of the kind of relationships that you need to have, the kind of relationships that we need to be building and thinking about especially when we think about the challenges of our culture and this day. And if you look in your notes there, I, I just put some of the relational challenges that we feel today. Uh, what, what's the first one that I would say? The digital domination of our age. Literally, I, and, and it's hard for us to realize how quickly this technology, digital technology, it's, I liken it to a tidal wave that just came through. When you look at the level of penetration of the technology itself, how quickly we adapted to it, how quickly we adopted it, it really is amazing. I mean, when you think about the fact just 10 years ago, most teenagers didn't have a smartphone. And now 95% of them have one. When you look at how many people were on social media, if you start year 2000 to year 2021, I mean, it's unbelievable how quickly, and it's so penetrated, so saturated everything that we do that we don't really even think about it anymore. But like a tidal wave, and that's why I say it came so fast, especially those of us as leaders, as parents, it, it kind of flooded us. <laughs> we could barely hold on, much less hold on to the next generation and know how to lead them well in it. And so we're seeing the impact of it. When you look at it and go, a teenager today spends 3,000 hours a year on a device of some form or another, then that's a tidal wave that's had an impact. And we're feeling it. And it's impacted our relationships. Because hand in hand with it, 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 the same time that came in, the other numbers that have risen are numbers of isolation and loneliness. That, that we see the growing sense of isolation, the growing sense of loneliness. I mean, the studies with it, when 20% of Americans say they rarely feel close to another person. It's one out of five people in our country go, I rarely ever feel close to someone. And that's pretty growing isolation. When 78% of Americans, when, when they are lonely, you know what their go-to way of coping is? A device. Because you put the digital domination with the loneliness. And so I don't feel good right now. I feel lonely. I feel down. And our quick go-to is, let me pull out my phone. Let me watch something. Let me stream something. Now, again, I, I'm not bashing all the technology. I'm just wanting us to go, we just got to realize the world that we live in and the wave that came over us. When you look at the impact and the power of connection, I was looking at all these scientific studies. And, and done all over the world, different contexts. They did a group of 3,000 women with breast cancer. Found invariably the ones who had relational connections survived much higher rate. And it was all based on relationship. In France, they did a, a study of 17,000 utility workers. And so it's all the same segment with it. Almost invariably, they could go and say the ones who have the greatest success of being alive 10 years from now will be based on the number of relationships they had. More than anything else. It was relationships. They did a study of 50-year-old men, which I can relate to. Invariably, the ones who have the least heart issues 
were the ones who had greatest relationship. I mean, the, the science goes over and over and over and over. The science is telling us relationships matter. But it's one of the few categories we are, as a people, doing the opposite of the science. We are losing these relationships that much more and more. And we're paying for it. I, I, I saw an article, it was in the New York Times Weekend Edition, uh, of uh, the Japan has actually appointed a minister of loneliness. Literally a person that their job is how do we combat loneliness in our country? And here's what prompted them to action. They saw more suicides in October of 2020 than they saw COVID deaths that whole year. And they went, something is going on, something's wrong. And we know that the pandemic has contributed to it. But, but you look at it and you go, this, this loneliness that creeps across it. There's a company that's created a loneliness robot to be your friend, literally, so that when you're, the robot is designed just to hold your hand. There's other people that are actually selling their service that, that it's kind of a rent a friend. And you may laugh at it. People hire them. You know what they do? They just sit with them and they let them tell them problems and talk to them. And, and, and I look at it and go, have we reached the point where we got to rent a friend, where we have robot friends? And, and the reality is, as much as we go, oh man, that's an issue out there. Man, if you study in the church, maybe in our church, maybe you, especially in the Bay Area, these are real issues. And then you add to that individualization. Individualization. So, so now the world, with the digital world, and I'm isolated in it, and, and even when I go to sit down, if you turn on Hulu, turn on Netflix, what's the first question to ask you? Who's watching? So now we can individualize the entertainment to match your algorithm. And, and we've reached a point that even kind of watching TV is no longer a group exercise. It's based on each individual, and if you don't like that programming, well, you have your own device, you can go watch on your own device, and we'll just separate and watch our own device as we individualize all that's coming at us. The, the problem is we're doing the same thing with our spirituality. Uh, uh, Barna did a uh, research study with navigators about how people approach a discipleship. And, and the growing trend in discipleship, it's an oxymoron, is solo discipleship. I just kind of want to do it on my own. Uh, in that study, Barna noted, 41% of people said, I believe my spirituality should be totally private. 37% said, I just want to be discipled on my own. I just want to be kind of in control of my own program because it's individualized. Now again, the problem is, it just doesn't work that way. It's never designed that way. And then you add the last level, and this is especially for the next generation a level of mistrust and cynicism. A growing mistrust and cynicism, especially about church and institutions and leadership. Uh, we've seen it. There's growing mistrust a lot of times about politics and leaders with it because character actually matters. And we're reaping the fruit of some of the things that we as leaders, and I just say this as a church leader, some of the ways that we should have led better. Things maybe we got caught up in. And, and, and you look at it, I mean, you don't have to look very far over the last few years. Some of the e even major churches and leaders and ministries that we looked up to, and it kind of curtain got pulled behind the scenes. And you got a church two movement. 
There's abuses of power, sexual abuse, and people have been hurt by it. And, and young people look at that and they go, is this real? Man, it's hard to trust. I, I think we've not done well, and I'll just church-wide, I'm not casting stones at any one church. I, I'm, I think all of us have to own this in a way. We, we, we got caught up in kind of a celebrity culture. And we, we love that part of it and got caught up in it. Uh, I, I remember several years ago, I had a, there was a kind of church consulting group. They had called me and they said, man, we could really help your church. We think we could help you grow and reach people. It's always reach people for Christ. And I'm like, great, talk to me. What, what, I mean, what, what, what should we do? What are your services? And I'll never forget that the, the guy said, he goes, well, we've been looking at it. And here's what you need to realize as the senior pastor. You are the brand. I was like, what? He goes, you're the brand. You've got to embrace you're the brand. And so, man, we've got to take you and your thoughts and your social media and who you are and brand you. And I remember saying to the guy, I was like, I thought Jesus was the brand. And he goes, oh, no, no, we, we want to share Jesus, but we're going to brand you. And, and I said to him, I said, I, I hate to break to you, I am a terrible brand. I'm just like terrible. <laughs> and I laughed because he said to me, he goes, oh, yeah, we've been looking. You are. You're terrible. But we can fix you. And I remember saying, to him, I don't want to get fixed. I mean, you know, the dog got fixed and I didn't like that. So I, I, I think I'm going to just be fine like I am with it. And I remember hanging up and I thought, this is not going to be good if this is where we're going. And the reality is, it's not been good. I, I, I've seen enough of it. I've seen enough of celebrity culture. I've seen different places. And, and you get kind of behind the scenes with it. And I don't think it's helped us as church and has eroded a certain level of trust, I think, with young people. And I think we have to own it. I think we have to own in ways, and this is beyond culture or anything else, own in ways all of us get set in our ways and we like to do things our way and the way we individualized have done it. And so generationally it's healthy at times to just stop and go, man, how could we do this better and openly in it? See, I think all these things have caught up with us in different ways. And, and as much as I'd love to always blame stuff out there, I may not be able to control what's happening out there. But I think we can address what's happening in here. And the great news is, we still have the truth of God's Word. We have the Holy Spirit within us. We have Jesus Christ as our Savior. We have the good news and the gospel. If anyone should be able to build meaningful relationships... It's the people who have a relationship with the triune God. He literally is an eternal relationship. And we were made in His image. And we've healed our relationship with Him, and He's given us the ability to have a relationship with each other. But this should be home court advantage for us. But it's not going to be convenient. In fact, it's going to be hard. So how do we address it? Let me just hit some of the ways we face these challenges. Here's the first one. We've got to be honest about our failures in these areas as parents and pastors and as leaders. We've got to be honest about our failures in it. There's a place of just stepping forward and going, yeah, we didn't do this well. And I would say with this tidal weight of, of technology, the reality is, and I say this to next generation, but I say it to other parents too, the wave came so fast, we could barely stay afloat in it. We haven't handled our own 
issues with devices very well and knowing how to carve it out in our world, much less knowing how to lead kids real well in it. And that's okay. I mean, it happened. And we can either feel so guilty about it we don't want to address it at all, or we just look at it in a real way and go, okay, it's here. This is the world I live in. I have all this here. How am I going to frame it in a way that I can start leading next generation better in it? How can we do church in a way that, that kids are involved with it? that young people know it's their church, that we build these kind of relationships. How do we address some of the stuff? I mean, even some of the ways we do things. You know, the whole sage on the stage. You know, the, the smart guy on the stage who tell, has all the answers. It doesn't really work with next generation as much anymore. They want to see that you're real. And, and not just talking at them, but talking with them. How do we create that? Not just within the church, but also in our homes. And as I say all this, I know this whole series, I've talked to different parents, and, and I feel it at times. We can feel guilty about these things. You can look at it and go, man, I wish I'd done this better. You know what I've found? I have found that kids are so forgiving if you'll just be honest and humble. If you'll do those two. Now, there may be some places we've got to rebuild trust, but believe it or not, your kids actually want you to succeed as a parent. And, and if you need to rebuild that trust, you need to recognize God has placed this reservoir of trust in the heart of every kid that is just waiting to be tapped so that they can give it to their parents. And so for all of us, I just encourage us, there's the grace that Christ gives, but there's also the grace we experience. Don't, don't let your guilt about what you should have done keep you from stepping in to talking about it, to addressing it now. And it shouldn't keep us for, as a church from, from stepping into that and learning from it. Uh, a second thing I would say with this, we must answer the questions of the heart as much as the questions of the head. Now, we've talked the last few weeks about cultural discernment, and that was that second practice. And so we've got to address those questions of the head. We've got to address what's going on in the world and how the wisdom of the Word speaks to that. We've got to address real questions that they have of how do you live in this culture today? How do you trust the Bible? How do you live in a, in a world that is changing so much? And we're going to address some of those key questions in this series. But if all we do is address the questions of the head and we never deal with the issues of the heart, you're not going to see any change in any generation. What do I mean when I say the questions of the heart? One, am I loved? <laughs> Man, this is a question of everyone's heart. And whether we want to admit it or not, all of us struggle with this. Man, does anybody really love me? Could you love me? And then you put that, who cares about me? Man, when, a, when a young person, especially when you come into a church, when they come into a church and they look around, would they be able to answer the question, who cares that I'm here? Who cares about my life? Who cares about my issues? And then the third key one, who are my friends? Who will be with me in life? Who will do life through thick and thin? And, and again, this is why it's so important. Man, I always want us to have head, answer those questions of the head, because I think it's so important. But I think those are a lot easier. See, this comes through answers. This comes through actions. You show people that they are loved. You show people that you care. You show people you show up with a kind of friendship. And the reality, and, and again, 
This is where church should have home court advantage. Man, this should be so fundamental to who we are. You remember Jesus' words. What did he say? He says, a new command I give you. Notice the word there. He doesn't say a new suggestion I give you. He doesn't say, man, this would really be great if my people kind of did this every so often. He literally goes, no, this is a commandment. And it comes right off the command, you love God with all your heart. So core command, you're supposed to have a relationship with God. It's always supposed to have this vertical relationship. And Jesus comes right after it and he goes, hey, you know what's just as important? The, the horizontal. This relationship with God is always going to show up here. And so I give you the commandment, love one another. And then he qualifies it, as I have loved you. So lest you just think it's an emotion, as Jesus loved, he always loved with action. He loved with sacrifice. He loved by laying down his life. He says, as I love you. And then I notice he puts it here, you must love one another. Again, notice he's taking all optionality out of it. He goes, this is just so fundamental to who the church is. This is so fundamental to what you do. Guys, you have to do this. You have to love each other. And then it's fundamental to your witness. By, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And, and so the whole world is watching but I would add to this, by this, the next generation is going to know you're my disciples. By this, the young people in your home and in your life and in your church, they're going to look at it and decide, man, is this really somebody that follows Jesus? And you know what they're going to decide based on? How we love each other. And I would just say, how are we doing? Because, you know, when Paul describes you don't, you know what this kind of love looks like? You do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. When, when somebody's asking, does anybody care about me? Man, the church steps forward and goes, absolutely I care, because I'm going to count you more important than me. Let each of you not only look out for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. I mean, you, you live it out in a real way. You know, I, I, it's been awesome for me as a parent. You know, I've got a household of kids. I've got seven kids. And uh, my son, Ken, who's a senior, and he's gone through our student ministry here, through Venture Student Ministry. And one of the things I love in our student ministry is they put them in small groups. They have adults in those groups who build into their lives. And Ken's leader for the last few years has been a guy named Scott G. Scott's a great guy. He teaches school. He's got a newborn baby. He's here on Tuesday night. And so they come for Tuesday night and they have worship. And Charles usually teaches. And then they break into small groups. That investment alone, that Scott would be there every week, man, that would make me thrilled as a parent. But let me just tell you, over the last few years as I've watched, how many times Scott follows up? How many times Kent's car, he has old Jeep Cherokee, and it wasn't running well. And we determined, man, we got to find a new car. Scott said, oh, I'll help you. I'm great with cars. He helped him fix up, fix up the Jeep in order to get it sold. Bought an old Subaru because Scott knew how to fix Subarus. I don't know anything about Subarus. They get this Subaru. Scott's there to help, man, make sure to negotiate the right price because he knew all about the car. Other day, Kent's air conditioner was out. Kent comes in and he just says, hey, here's the parts we need to order. And I'm like, okay, I, I, I've never changed the compressor out. I've done some things on cars. And he goes, oh, no, Scott and I got it. And so two weeks ago, 
He leaves about 6 o'clock at night, comes back four hours later. They put a compressor on, put the belts on. And, and lest you think it's just me, I mean, I was talking to another mom that has her son in the group. And she said the same thing. She said, man, Scott always shows up. Now, the guys in that group, when they walk in this church and they ask themselves, does anybody here love me? Does anybody here care? You know whose name is inserted there? Scott G. And guys, he's got a busy life. He's got a newborn child. But he's not just doing what's inconvenient. He decided to invest what's important. And I'll just ask you, I ask myself. I mean, who would put your name in? Who would answer those questions of who cares, who loves me, who's my friend, with your name? See, that's what it looks like to live this out. It's not just some glowing sentiment. We come to church and we all act, treat nice. It's actually costly sacrifice. And it makes a difference with it. Third thing with it, we've got to model the value of godly relationships and especially friendships in our life. We can't call our kids to something that we're not living. You can't give what you don't live. And so I think a big part of this, as much as we can go, man, kids are on devices and kids don't have any time and kids are doing things. Man, what are we doing in our lives? What are you doing in your relationship? You know, one of the core ways we do this as a church, we call everybody to be in a life group. And the reason we do that is you need to do life together. You need these kind of relationships. We call each other to love each other despite the differences. And if anything the last two years have shown us, we got a lot of differences in the church. We have differences of opinions. We disagree about things. But disagreement is not the reason that we should ever divide. And we should never stop loving. In fact, I love how Peter puts it. Look, look how he puts it before nine. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. I love that he says keep, because he knows it gets hard. So you got to keep doing it. And you actually have to earnest. You got to put your shoulder into it. And then I love this next line. Look what he says. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Do you realize what he's saying there? Peter goes ahead and makes the assumption there's going to be a multitude of reasons that you're not going to love them. There's going to be a multitude, because he knows churches are filled with real people. And real people have real problems, and real people are going to get on each other's nerves, and real people disagree about things. And so you look at it, he even goes, man, they're going to do sinful actions at times that may be hurt actions, but you keep loving because love covers those sins. It covers the problems. Even the multitude of them. He says, show hospitality. Open up your home to each other, especially to strangers, maybe people you don't know. And, and, and do it without grumbling. I love he throws this in he goes, y'all quit complaining so much. Just start living this stuff and quit complaining with that. See, we, we've got to live this. And you need to live this. And maybe at a core place you need to stop and look and go, man, who are the relationships? And let me just say this, who are the friendships? I, I'll just say in my journey as following Christ, I would not be a resilient disciple except for the friendships who have called me up when I needed the friendships who showed up when I needed. And I think one of the things that's eroding, not just the next generation, every generation, is we're losing those kind of friendships. Because often we don't have the time. I love how Proverbs puts it, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Man, we need these kind of friends. 
Now, to have this, let me get real practical on the next one. Get off your devices. Get off your devices. And, and unless you think this is a mistake here with this gap, I, I really, get off your, and in the blank here, I'd say get off your blank devices, and you can put whatever expletive you want. I would have put one in here, but that's the only thing you would have remembered from the sermon. And, and so, but I mean it that strongly. Get off your blank devices. And th- th- these things are killing us more than we like to admit. And, and here's what I would say in it. it it's funny to me, because anytime I talk about like relationships and we talk about doing, maybe even in this message, you're listening, you're going, oh man, I wish I could do that. I just don't have time. Here's what I would challenge you. Pull up your smartphone, go to your settings, look at your battery, and look how much time you spent on each different app. Now, I know some of these are real important. I do email on it and that. I'm amazed, though, when I look at the time that I go, yeah, I really didn't need to waste that. I really didn't need to spend that. I I, I think we're never going to get the time for the things that are important if we always waste it on something that's really, really convenient, but usually not very important. I'd encourage you on this. If you want to apply this, you'd do well. Just do a digital audit. Do a digital audit. Just audit yourself over the course of a week. And go, how, many, how much time am I spending on what? And again, just, just add it up. Then create a digital budget. Create a digital budget. And all that means is we all have the same amount of hours in a week. If you create a financial budget, you know what you, you do in it? You have this amount of money, where am I going to spend it? And unless I can make more money, I better figure out how to do with this amount of money. Same thing with your hours. You're not going to be able to create more hours. So how are you spending them? And then I think for all of us, how do we create some digital discernment? Um, I, you know, I read an article that was fascinating about the Amish. And I know when I say that, you go, Tim, we're not going to become the Amish. They, they don't embrace any technology. I, and I, I'm not asking you to be the Amish, but it was fascinating as I read the article. Anytime technology, they're not anti-technology per se, but they have a process before they'll ever adopt any. And so you have to bring it to the community. And so one Amish man came to the community and he said, hey, I think we ought to buy automated balers. Man, you can get a baler and we could be much more efficient with our crops. They brought it to the community and they said, yeah, what is that going to do though when everybody starts working alone in a culture where we're used to working together? And yeah, we'd be able to bail more, but we think it's going to hurt relationships too much. Another guy came and he said, I'd like to have propane go to each of the rooms in our house because everybody else likes to read and then they could be up at night reading. And again, the community decided, you know what though? All that time now is going to be separated when you used to spend it together. Even if you're reading in the same room, it was united together. Now, again, you may hear that. I don't live that way. So I'm not saying embrace their decisions. But you know, we would do well to embrace their process. Anytime a new technology comes, instead of just assuming, man, I ought to have that, we got to have that, we're going to have it in our home, if we stop and go, what will that do to the community of our household? What does that do to the community here? And we start practicing some discernment in it. I'll give you number four. We've got to intentionally create, or number five, intentionally create intergenerational connection within the church. And that's part of what we're doing. That's part of if you come on a Sunday morning now, that's why we have middle school and high school in. 
Because we believe we need to be worshiping together. We need to be studying the same stuff together. We need to have that same experience. But it's got to go beyond just, man, we're in one room. That's why we do Tuesday night the way we do. That's why everybody that's in middle school and high school, they're in small groups so that they can have an adult and other adults who are building into their life and, and speaking into their life. And so we can have those relationships. That's what we need on Sunday morning. From the earliest babies all the way up, that there are people there loving them and discipling them and involved in it. And, and I would encourage you, uh, maybe if you're watching this digitally, maybe you haven't come back to campus yet. And so if you're at home and you're watching this, great, we're glad to have the technology, but I would encourage you, how are you creating community there? Maybe you're watching this as a family. Are you talking about it after? Are you using that experience? Maybe you don't feel safe yet with COVID. I get that. But in every way we're looking, man, how do we invest? Uh, one of the things that we're really working on is how, how do we open up second service so that we can have people working in our children's ministry there? That's deep on my heart. And we need more adults in it. We need some of the people, and, and some of you, anytime I talk about like children's ministry, you've written yourself off. You go, you know, I'm not really a Sunday school teacher type of person. You're probably the perfect person for it. Especially, uh, and I'll just say this for boys, Man, they need more men. I, I remember in my life, I, I grew up in a pretty conservative church. And I remember I walked into a fourth grade classroom and I look around, I, I couldn't find the teacher. I see this 20-something-year-old guy. But in my world, you didn't teach Sunday school unless you were in your 60s and female. That's all I experienced. And you had to be an expert in flannel graph. And there's this 20-something-year-old guy. He goes, hey, come on in. My name's Billy. And Billy, he tells us all about his life. I remember going home, my mom was so shocked because I was like, man, we got this teacher, his name's Billy, but we, we call him Snuff Man. She's like, Snuff Man? And I was like, oh, have you ever heard of this stuff called Snuff? It's tobacco. And, it's, and you put it in your lip and you can suck on it. And, and my mom's eyes are getting wide. And even as I think about it now, I don't, I don't know how Snuff Man made it through the uh, ranks with it, except for this. He loved Jesus. That's what he sold. He sold it as his product. That, that was his job. But he loved Jesus and he loved us. And I'm telling you, for the first time, I'm going to church, and this guy's talking about hunting, and he's talking about fishing. And then we took us to his country club so we could swim at the pool and had a cabin and go out. I, I mean, I, suddenly there was a guy in my life that I went, man, this guy loves Jesus. And I think he loves me. And it makes a difference. I, I remember my son Drew, my oldest son. He had hit that age where church really wasn't his vibe. He was in elementary school, and it was like, oh, uh, because it was feeling more like school. Sunday school was feeling a lot like school school. And, and I'll never forget, suddenly Drew liked going to church one year, and he loved his class. And I was like, what's going on there? He goes, oh, Mr. Kenny. Mr. Kenny's awesome. And I knew him. It was Kenny Gibb. I knew him. He was an investment banker and financial counselor with people. What I didn't know, he was also an MMA trainer. He trained guys in MMA. And so he was taking Sunday morning. Yeah, they were doing the lesson. But he was also like, man, teaching them stuff they loved hearing. Like one day I said, what'd you learn in church today? And Drew goes, hey, when you got an opponent on the ropes, you throw your punches in bunches. You do not let up. And I was like, okay, I like it. And you know, Lee's like, I'm not sure. I like that lesson. I'm like, this is exactly, here's my point. Some of you have written yourself off. And you're just what a young person needs. They need your life. And here's what they need to see with it. 
a real person who loves Jesus and loves them. And it makes a difference. So we've got to invest in that way. But to do that, I'm just going to tell you right now, it won't be convenient. If you're going to come serve on a Sunday morning, you'd have to go to two services. I know that's horrible. How could we spend a Sunday on two services? And yet I look at it and go, yeah, it's not convenient. Oh, but it's so important. Give a final principle with this. Invest your life into meaningful relationships. This, this is the key principle of the whole thing. Is how are you investing now? How are you giving your life away? How are you living out? This is what makes Paul such a rock star. Look, look at this. Paul always, every book, he's always saying this. Be imitators of me, brothers and sisters, and watch carefully those who are living this way, just as you have us as an example. I love that Paul, even when he's planning churches, even when he's on missionary journeys, whatever he's doing, he always has somebody right next to him. He says, hey, you just imitate me. Follow me. I'll invest in you. He was always investing down into someone else. Instead of just doing his job, man, he pulled somebody along with him. And I'd encourage every one of us, whether it's at church where you come and you invest in a life, whether it's at your office, where instead of making all of work about you and you always being in the limelight, you start looking at the younger people around you and go, man, how do I invest in them? How do I set them up to win? Whether maybe you're an older person, that you hit that point of retirement, and you're wondering what to do with yourself, it is the best season of life to invest in a younger adult. Invest in somebody who's trying to figure out their life. And yet so many people squander it. They go, oh, what do I have to give? Just give yourself. Give your life. Years ago, a new guy named Bill. And uh, Bill had hit that point. He had retired. And he didn't know what he was going to do. He'd phenomenally wealthy in it. And he went to the pastor and, and he said, man, what should I do in this season? And he said, you ought to mentor guys. And he goes, mentor? Man, I blew it in so many ways. I, I totally gave myself to career for too long. I messed up my first marriage. I had to heal relationships with my adult kids. The pastor looked at him and said, yeah, why don't you share that? Why don't you share the principles of your life now? Because you're one of the best students of the Bible. You're so consistent in your quiet time. You know how to read the Bible and it means something to you. You know business in a way that a lot of guys don't. You know life in a lot of ways. So Bill started mentoring people. And, and over the next decade of his life, he battled cancer while he mentored men. And I'll never forget being at his funeral. And at his funeral, those years later, in the middle of the eulogy, the pastor said, hey, if you were mentored by Bill, would you stand up? You wouldn't believe how many people stood up. And then the next question is, if you have been mentored by one of the people standing, would you stand up? And then the hundreds that stood up. See, the legacy of a guy who instead of just living his life of what would have been convenient, he did what was important. Because one day, every single one of us, we're going to stand in front of Jesus. And all of us will give an account. Uh, we, we don't talk about it a lot. You, you realize on that day, there's two sets of books. There's the book of life and there's the book of deeds. The book of life determines your eternal destination. If your name's in the book of life because you have a relationship in Christ, man, you go to eternal reward with him. If your name's not there, you go to eternal punishment. 
But there's also the book of deeds. And the book of deeds determines your level of reward or your level of punishment. And again, we, we don't talk about this a lot. And some of you are like, wait, what? I thought you kind of pray the prayer and we all get to heaven. It's kind of, you know, spiritual communism. Everybody gets a mansion. We're all happy with that. I go, no, actually what you do in this life, how you steward your life, how you invest it makes a difference then. And so I, I want to encourage you. As you think about the things that matter most in life, here's what I can promise you. As much as anything else, Jesus will look at you and go, who did you invest in? Who are the people that you gave your life away to? And to do it, it will not be convenient. It will never come at a convenient time. But it's one of the most important things that you can do. We got to do it as a church. We need to do it as parents. But I say this across every age, from the youngest person hearing this to the oldest person hearing this. Invest your life in these kind of relationships because it makes all the difference. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. Thank you just that we can wrestle with these things and be honest where we failed because we have your grace. But also know that you want us to succeed in it. You give us truth. You give us spiritual power. You give us the ability to love each other as you've loved us. And that's available through Christ. Lord, I continue to pray for venture. Could we be a place that raises resilient disciples? Could we be a place that no matter who walks through the door, they would be able to answer the questions, who loves me? And they know they're loved here. Who cares about me? And know somebody cares. Who are the kind of relationships the kind of friendships that will make a difference in my life. And they would know they could find them here. Lord, we don't know how to manufacture that, but we know through your power, you engender it, you make it happen. And so we look to you in this and pray this in Christ's name. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.